Well, good morning. Once more, please turn with me in your copy of Scripture to Acts chapter 2. In the text today, Peter continues his address to this multitude who has assembled, having heard this handful of Galileans speaking in unlearned languages. They are bewildered. They don't know what to think about it. We hear that this is because of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in accordance with Old Testament promises. He cites Joel as he begins his sermon, and we continue in verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. The word of the Lord. The main point here is simple and profound. The crucified, risen, and ascended Christ is the Davidic Messiah who has ushered in the last days. As I just mentioned, Peter starts his sermon by quoting Joel which is a quotation precipitated by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, but it doesn't describe only that, as the rest of the sermon is going to make very clear. Instead, rehearsing our conclusion from last time, and I understand this is a bit of a mouthful, so I actually put this up on the screen here. You're like, whoa, look at that. It's like a full paragraph. Here's, here's where we landed last time. In the person and work of Christ, climactically capped by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, God has from heaven intruded into earthly affairs in a staggering and monumental way in order to bring about salvation and judgment, both of which, as currently operative, are precursors to final salvation and judgment on the day of the Lord. And that this intrusion of God in Christ is a precursor to final salvation 
in judgment is why it can be described with that cosmic language that will characterize the end, just like to return to our Olympics imagery or a, a analogy illustration from last time, the opening ceremonies have a lot in common with the closing ceremonies, despite being on different sides of the events. Okay, so that's where we are. And notice that immediately after quoting Joel, instead of focusing on the spirit of prophecy that occasioned the quote, he, he begins to discuss the fullness of it by describing Jesus and his own ministry. And he starts with that corporate language in 22, men of Israel, men of Israel, hear these words, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs God did through him in your midst, as you yourself know, again, Yahweh has powerfully intruded, has entered into history in the person of Jesus Christ, God with us. God has literally visited us, he is saying, complete with signs and wonders. And the people assembled here, whether they were residents of Jerusalem or whether they were there simply for Pentecost, they had pilgrimage there for Pentecost, they would have been very aware of Jesus' ministry. They would have been very aware of what happened. His miracles, his exorcisms, his fate. In fact, many of them were there five or so weeks ago for Passover. So they would have known. They would have known not just what happened to him, but they would have known why and what he claimed to do and what preceded his death. This Jesus, he goes on to say, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Peter makes two critical points there, doesn't he? The first is that the killing and crucifixion of Jesus was not some surprise or not some ruining of God's plan. Instead, it was a part of his definite plan or his determined plan, the Greek word meaning appointed or determined. That's why he had foreknowledge of it. It's not as though God looked down the corridors of time and was like, oh no, they end up killing my son. I can't believe it. That's not it. Instead, it wasn't ruining the plan. It was part of the plan. And as we're going to see, it was part of the fulfillment of what had been prophesied. So it was according to a definite plan that this had happened. And yet, second, he says, you crucified and you killed by the hands of lawless men. Now, maybe some of these folks were the ones actually screaming a couple of weeks earlier, crucify him, crucify him, and wanting Barabbas to be released instead of Jesus. But what's more likely, even if that's the case, is that there is an element of corporate culpability here. And certainly, when we get down to verse 37 that we'll start with next week, this multitude understood themselves to be responsible. They understood themselves to be responsible, and therefore... We have the two truths that oftentimes we must hold, perhaps always hold to some degree, in tension as we go through Scripture. God's definite, predetermined plan and people's responsibility. God's plan is not, we learn, an abstract idea with no actors. Instead, it includes concrete individuals who make concrete choices that advance the plan. 
and that nevertheless, those folks are responsible for. So the parallel in Acts 4 is very instructive. The disciples are gathered back together and they say, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Look at all those characters. There's not a general idea of a plan. There's not a general idea of salvation. All of these people, all of these categories of people, think of all the choices that had to be made for Jesus to actually end up being crucified. What the crowd chanted, Pontius Pilate, uh, had to make certain choices. Herod had to make certain choices. The Roman soldiers had to make certain choices. All of them part of the definite plan of God. And at the same time, they're absolutely 100% responsible for what they've done. You killed and crucified by the hands of lawless men. Having said that, there was more to the plan because this was no mere man. This was no, this was no mere man. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So God determined his death. Yes, he determined his death by the hands of lawless men who are responsible nevertheless. Yes, but he also determined the other side. That wasn't the end. He equally determined that death would not and in fact could not actually hold him. And instead, in accordance with God's plan, God raised Jesus bodily. This is, gonna, this is very important. He raised him bodily from the dead. He had victory then, not only just the sin that he died to forgive, but he has victory over the grave itself. It can't hold him. It can't hold him. And up until this point of redemptive history, the grave was batting a thousand for my non-sports people. Translation, that means that the grave had kept every single person successfully. No one had been loosed from its cords, its pangs. Everyone had been kept by them. But then, but not Jesus. Not Jesus. He was conquered. Uh, he, he, excuse me, he conquered he conquered the grave. And so explaining that this is part of the plan, Peter quotes from Psalm 16 and gives us our third apostolic hermeneutics lesson. Okay? So just like last week, just so you can see what Peter is doing, what he's doing, turn back with me to Psalm 16. Turn back with me to Psalm chapter 16. I want to just briefly look at it. We won't spend a ton of time there. Psalm 16 is a psalm where David is expressing his confidence that God will not abandon his soul. He says that the lines have fallen for him in pleasant places and that he has a beautiful inheritance. And in verse 8 he says, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. And the Greek translation of that is Hades, the place of the dead. Or let your Holy One see corruption. 
You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Again, a psalm about God not abandoning David, even in death, that his soul would not see corruption. Now turn back to Acts chapter 2. Turn back to Acts chapter 2. Peter quotes the psalm loosely, but the differences don't seem to reflect anything that he's trying to do intentionally, like adding the last days to the Joel quote. It just kind of reflects the loose way Peter tends to quote the Old Testament. That's just his pattern. That's just the way that he does it. And if, if you know, we might not like that, but that is, it just is what it is. That's how he quoted, that's how he quoted the Old Testament. But he essentially produces exactly what we read. But what is incredibly compelling is that despite the psalm being in the first person, written by David, about David, David calling out, you read in the first part of verse 25 that Peter says, for David says concerning him. Well, who is him though? Who is him? We've got to back up another verse. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death. Well, it's Jesus. That's who he's talking about. He is saying that, you know, Jesus couldn't stay dead. You know why? This is what David was saying. He could not be, uh, he, was, he was not going to be abandoned to Sheol. He was not going to see corruption. And then he continues in verse 29. He says, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Now that may say there in the Greek, that just expresses possibility. Something like, it is possible. And what is he saying is possible? What he's saying is that despite David's confidence, he did in fact die. And his body is worm food over there in the tomb, and everyone knows where it is. And everyone would have known where it was because there was a big hubbub about it. Herod tried to raid it to get money. It did not work out well for him. But there's David. His tomb is with us to this day. His body actually did see corruption. His flesh did see corruption. What is he, what's he saying then? He's saying, when he says, I may say that, he's saying it's possible that what, what is going on here, and when he says it's possible, he's saying it's possible for me to say truly. Okay, It's possible for me to say this, that that psalm was not ultimately, not at all, but not ultimately talking about David who did in fact die, who did suffer corruption of his body. This is about Jesus, whose flesh, and that's going to be critical, his flesh did not see corruption. It is true that David's soul did not see corruption, but his flesh did. There is a fuller fulfillment, you might say. It wasn't just what David thought, and then when he died, that came true. It was that there was a prophetic quality to what he was saying. And Peter gives in what I think is just absolutely fascinating, but certainly very important for how we understand the, the, the Old Testament. He gives a theological interpretation of David as an author. Listen to what he says in verses 30 through 32. Being therefore a prophet, a prophet, 
Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath that to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that were all witnesses. Nowhere in the Old Testament, anywhere, is David called a prophet. David wasn't a prophet. What's going on here? What's Peter doing here? What is going on? Because of our first scripture reading in 2 Samuel 7, we know something about David that God covenanted with him to set a descendant on the throne to rule the kingdom forever. And David, as an author, wrote knowing that. Using the language, it's actually it's Psalm 132, 11 is referencing the Davidic covenant, but using the language of Psalm 132, he refers to that covenant and he says that David had this prophetic quality to him and he actually foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ. And then notice that he changes the tense in verse 20, uh, from verse 27. So if you look down at verse 31, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of, resurrection of Christ and it's past tense here instead of future like it was in the quote, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This is something that he understands to have already come true. This is something that he has understood to already have happened because of what has happened with Christ, that God's raised him from the dead. There are eyewitnesses to it. Now here's the thing. Once we hear that David is being called a prophet, we should all be thinking that something's going on here that's more than just meets the surface. More than meets the eye. It's a mixed, mixed metaphor there. The foreseeing that David does isn't superpowers. Okay? He's not like God looking into the, into the future. That's not what it's suggested. Instead, it is David who is the recipient of the Davidic covenant to be fulfilled by the Messiah who foresees the resurrection of Jesus literarily, which is why Peter can call him a prophet. Literarily. I'm sure calling David a prophet to that crowd would have raised some eyebrows, some serious eyebrows. But there was a prophetic quality to David's literature as a whole. What kind of prophecy is this then? Well, we talked about truth maker fulfillment where it's a future prediction and something happens where it comes true. In Acts chapter 1, we talked about exemplary fulfillment where a certain principle uh, or ideal finds its fullest and, finest, uh, fullest and final expression in the New Testament. This is, this is just straight up rich typological fulfillment. As we tip, or typology, this is what typology is. This is typological fulfillment. As we move through Scripture's narrative, according to the promise fulfillment theme, there are certain people, there are certain events, there are certain institutions that foreshadow, foreshadow, they, they, they point us toward a greater and fuller version of themselves. Okay, so it's not as though they said things about the future that they made these future looking statements. That's not it. It's that in the scope of redemption, redemptive history, that these things themselves have a prophetic quality to them. 
David is understood as the one who will be succeeded by Christ, the Davidic branch, the Davidic Messiah. That's why you've heard, maybe perhaps sometimes people say that he is the greater and better David. That's trying to use that language of intensity that we see happen with typology. And so to understand typological prophecy it's, and its interpretation and application, it's really important to understand that the, the, the whole Old Testament we learn in the New has a prophetic quality to it. That's why Jesus can say in Matthew chapter 11, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And we're sitting there going, wait a second, hold on, wait, wait, the law. That's not prophecy. It's like I've read Isaiah and I've read Leviticus. One's prophecy, one's not. What's Jesus talking about? What he's saying is that there is a, there is a canonical story that is speaking a word about what is coming down the pipe. Okay? And that is how, for example, Matthew in, in, 3, in Matthew 3.15, he can say that Hosea 11.1, 1, which is a verse referring backwards in time to the firstborn son of God, Israel, coming out of Egypt, he can say that that is fulfilled in Jesus coming out of Egypt after Herod dies. This was to fulfill the prophets. It's like, wait a second, that wasn't even a future-looking statement. That was a description of the past. Yes, and the past speaks over redemptive history. There was something more there. And so a verse David wrote about not being abandoned to corruption, to find uh, by, abandoned by God, finds its fulfillment in Christ, who was not only not abandoned by God, but his flesh didn't see corruption either. His soul didn't see corruption, but his flesh didn't see corruption either. Okay? Christ's body didn't become worm food. It was resurrected and glorified. He was raised from the dead. And then we get a therefore here because the story still isn't over. It gets better. It keeps getting better. Therefore, he says, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Because of what Peter has just said, because of who Jesus is, because God's raised him from the dead, he has been exalted to the right hand of God to receive the Holy Spirit, which is language that most of us are like, well, that's kind of strange. But he receives the Holy Spirit that he promised he would then give out uh, to his disciples, the helper that would come afterwards. And that takes us very back, that takes us right back to what occasioned Peter's speech to begin with, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So we've made our circle, right? We've touched back down the whole reason the sermon began. So in the span of three tightly connected verses, we get the death, resurrection, ascension, exaltation, and sending of the Spirit of Christ as an explanation of what you yourselves are seeing and hearing. That's what Peter says. Christ has been exalted to the right hand of God, and now he is reigning. One commentator puts it very candidly. He says, Jesus has fulfilled what God had promised through Joel the prophet. 
establishing the fact that the last days have arrived. The new epoch of salvation in which the Messiah mediates salvation from God's side, ruling Israel from the heavenly throne. In bestowing the Spirit, Jesus acts according to Joel's prophecy as God acts. And so to further buttress this conclusion, he again appeals to the Psalms. Particularly the first verse of Psalm 110.1, which is the most cited psalm in the New Testament. Turn back with me briefly to Psalm 110, so we can see what's going on here. A psalm of David, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. What on earth does that mean? What is that supposed to mean? How did the Jews understand this passage? Isn't that a good question? If you were a Jew, how would you understand this passage? I'll tell you how the Jews understood this passage. This is a song, a psalm of David. Uh, it was written in the third person, so the Levitical choir could sing it. And the first name is the, is the Tetragrammaton, Yahweh, that they would not have pronounced. But the Lord is just title, like my Lord, my master. And that's a reference to David in particular, but whoever happened to be inhabiting the throne there in Jerusalem, in Zion, more generally. And so what a Jewish interpretation here says, what the Levitical choir would be singing is that, the, that, that Yahweh has given to my Lord the King, his right, put him at his right hand. Well, there's something interesting that happens a couple of verses down. If you look at verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek? Whoa! All of a sudden, this incredibly mysterious figure from Genesis 14 pops back up. This priest king of, 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 of Salem who has no beginning or end of days. They say, this isn't talking about there being a Melchizedekian priesthood. Okay, So they obviously reject the book of Hebrews, which this is exactly what it says. This isn't saying that the Levitical priesthood is going to be replaced. That's not it. Uh, what it is is Melchizedek in Hebrew means king of righteousness. And what they're saying is that this is a description of Israel's king. Okay, And they're saying David is a king of righteousness. A man after God's heart. That was their understanding. Okay? Now, turn back to Acts chapter 2. Turn back to Acts chapter 2. When Peter uses this, this is different than Jesus' use in the Gospels. Peter is using it to bolster his claim that Christ has been exalted, that Christ has been raised up. And that's very important, that he's left the ground and that he is exalted up in heaven. His flesh did not see corruption. And so Peter, what Peter says is, listen, David didn't ascend into the heavens. He's saying David didn't go anywhere. All right. His feet stayed right here on the ground, right here on the ground. And so therefore, regardless of what the Psalm reflected about David as God's handpicked king of righteousness or servant, what he said, because of this exact same reason we just reviewed, is not 
ultimately about himself. And it's not ultimately about Solomon. It is ultimately about the king who rules in Zion on David's throne. And that is the Messiah. That is the person of Christ. That is the seed that has been spoken of. And so he closes his explanatory portion of the sermon by returning to the corporate language of verse 22. Let all the house of Israel, but I wasn't there. I didn't do it. Let all the house of Israel, he says, therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Very strong language. How many divine name references that on the authority of God, He has made Him Lord. He has made Him Christ, the Messiah, that's Christ. This Jesus, for emphasis, that you crucified. That is ending things very poignantly. Okay? I try not to end my sermons like that. You know? If I'm boring, I at least don't end like that. You know what I'm saying? That is, that is, a, that is a heck of a way to end the sermon. All of you crucified Jesus. Boom. End of sermon. Okay, that's kind of what he does after all of this. He succinctly and powerfully summarizes really the main point of the whole passage here in the right verse. In, in the right verse, in the last verse. Okay, that the crucified, risen, and ascended Christ is the Davidic Messiah who has ushered in the final days. Now, this is one of those softball applications that I love. I love. Just be, this is a just behold your king. Look at this. Death couldn't hold him. The grave couldn't keep him. He rose up to put death down. He's exalted at the right hand of the Father. This is our king. This is our king. And, and you know, Imagine you are in the crowd hearing this. And maybe there's one sense, maybe some of you today are, figuratively speaking, are in that crowd. Maybe you are. You, you've heard of Jesus, maybe you've seen something of Jesus, but you've never really embraced Him as King of Kings or Lords of Lords. You've embraced Him because your parents embraced Him. Maybe you embraced Him because it was a culturally acceptable thing to do. Whatever the case may be. Maybe you've never really turned from your sin and to Christ. Or maybe you have, but your idea of Jesus has become watered down. Maybe it's been infected with uh, cultural baggage. Maybe you, you've seen instances of you know, the name of Jesus used to do things that are sinful and wrong. And sometimes we just have to level set and say, brothers and sisters, behold our King. It, it, risen, exalted, free from corruption, his flesh not abandoned. There is no one else who's ruling, and he is ruling until his enemies are made a footstool under his feet. That's the idea. At the Father's right hand. And we know that he is... His flesh did not see corruption. He is physically ascended because a couple chapters later, we're going to see a guy named Stephen. What happens right before Stephen 
is stoned and bleeds out and is concussed, he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Behold your God. There's only two ways to behold God in fear or in worship. And everyone has an opportunity to ask themselves, when you read a picture of this king, how do you respond? How do you respond? Is this the king that you want to serve? Or have you just been playing around? If you look at this and say, whoa, that's my hope. My hope is you look at this picture of an exalted Messiah in accordance with the, with the promises and the prophecies and say, yes! Yes, this is my king. This is the king that I want to serve. This is the king that I want to go to battle with and go to battle for. And I want to dedicate my life to. So the opportunity is before you today to repent and believe the gospel. And really, regardless where you're at, to take one step closer to Christ. For some people, it might be the very first step they've ever taken. For, for, for others of you, it might be the 100,000th step you've taken. But the call is the same. How will you respond to the king? That's the main application. The second application, and I want to be clear that this is a secondary piece of application because it's about what Peter is doing here, is a conceptual tool that I want to give you so that you can be a better Bible reader. This does enter a little bit into the realm of more advanced hermeneutics, but I'm not going to make it advanced, okay? It's going to be a very basic version of it. And the tool is the hermeneutical. That's a word that means interpretation, interpretive, okay? The hermeneutical priority of the New Testament over the Old. And the idea is that as a result of Christ's person and his work and how the Old Testament is used by New Testament authors, we should understand the Old Testament in the same way the authoritative inspired authors of the New Testament did, even if that causes us to go back and understand certain things that were going on in the Old Testament that we likely would not have picked up on if we only had read the Old Testament. Maybe it was incomplete. Maybe we were mistaken. But the idea is that the New Testament has the final word on the significance of the Old Testament and how we should understand it. And that's why you can read verses like this and say fulfillments like this and think, if I was reading the Psalms, that's not, I would have never gotten that from Psalm 16, Psalm 1. I never would have gotten that Hosea 11.1 1 about Israel coming out of Egypt was looking for some kind of fulfillment. What? Exactly. Of course you wouldn't because you didn't have the New Testament. Let me give you an illustration for this. I've used it before. It comes out of the first Harry Potter movie. If you haven't seen it, you'll still get the illustration. Okay? There's a point in the movie where Harry is flying on his broom in a Quidditch match, and it starts to go just bonkers. You know, it's like bewitched. It, it, it looks like the broom's trying to kill him or something. And Hermione kind of zooms over with her binoculars, and she sees Snape. Uh, this very charming looking guy. And uh, through the binoculars, and he is looking up 
uh, at, the, at Harry on the broom, muttering an incantation. And what we all suspected already, you know, is, is confirmed. That Snape is trying to end him. Snape has it out for Harry, and he's bewitched the broom or whatever. But then, in the second half of the movie, we get a change of perspective. And this is really critical about the change of perspective. We don't learn that Harry's broom wasn't actually acting up. That was there. We don't learn that Snape wasn't actually muttering an incantation or a spell or whatever. He was. We don't learn that the whole thing was a dream either. We don't learn that. All of the things that we saw were actually there. Just like we saw them. But the challenge is what we would have very justifiably concluded in that moment with the knowledge we had turned out to be wrong. Turned out to be wrong. There was some, it wasn't that what they saw they weren't seeing, but there was something going on that they missed. That's very key to understand it like that. They didn't learn that what they saw, they didn't actually, it didn't actually happen. What they learned was, well, what they saw was in fact what they saw, but they missed something. They didn't have the proper perspective to properly understand that moment. This is what happens when you read the Old Testament like a Jew. A Jewish reading of the Old Testament. It's reading someone else's mail. It's not a Christian reading of the Old Testament. What does that mean? It means a purely grammatical historical reading, which at first sounds great. So what that is, is we're going to seek to understand a passage in accordance with what the words mean, how the original audience would have understood those words and the culture and at the time and all the rest of it. That's how they would have understood it. And here's the thing, you're like, yeah, that's, that's responsible, of course. It gets us out of like saying some wild allegory or this is really some funny thing about has nothing to do with the text. We're taking it seriously. But here's the problem. Listen very carefully. Here's the problem. That hermeneutic led to this multitude crucifying the Messiah. You understand that? It's because of their understanding. It was because of their understanding of the Old Testament that they crucified Jesus. They were expecting Jesus because of their understanding of the Old Testament to bring a geopolitical kingdom. They, they thought because of their understanding of the uh, uh, Old Testament that they were expecting him to reign in Jerusalem and not from heaven. They certainly were not expecting a kingdom that was not of this world. They certainly had no concept because of their understanding of things that the nature of the Messiah would actually be to die. They certainly were not expecting the Messiah to claim to, e to be equal to God and have the ability to forgive sins. It was because of how they understood the Old Testament that they had certain expectations, and those expectations were wrong. And if we read the Old Testament the exact same way, we will be wrong too about what we are expecting now or in the future. This is a, this is a theme that we will be forced to circle back to in the book of Acts. 
But for now, I want you to walk away understanding that we have to take the Old Testament seriously. And in order to do that, Christ, as revealed and understood by the New Testament authors, has to frame our hermeneutical perspective, or we are going to go off the rails very, very quickly. It has to frame our perspective. I want to take the Old Testament, and I want to read it exactly how the original audience would have understood it. I want to read about Israel, and I want to read about temple, and I want to read about sacrifice, and I want to read about the land, and I want to read about the law, and I want to read about restoration, and I want to read about the remnant, and all of it. The full and final revelation of God in Christ. So Malachi chapter 4, I turn the page, and then part 2. The new covenant, the new testament. When I read the New Testament, then what I want to do is I want to go back to the old and see where my initial understandings of those things may have been incorrect or incomplete because I had a different hermeneutical lens. I did not have Christ and I did not have the inspired New Testament authors to demonstrate how they understood the fulfillment of these things to aid me as I then after having made that trek, turn around and look back at it. And it's not that it, the, the, it doesn't say what it doesn't say. That's not it. Just like my example with Harry and Snape and all the rest. It's that there is something more going on there that you would not see without the New Testament. That is what Peter does here. That is what Peter has been doing. That is what Peter will continue to do so that, so that when we get to the Jerusalem Council, and James stands up and quotes Amos 9 about rebuilding the tent of David and the fulfillment of restoration to Israel, you will have the conceptual tools, hopefully at that point, and certainly I'll be there to make a case, to wield texts like that well and take both Testaments responsibly as one coherent, authoritative Word of God. And so as we do so, I pray that the Lord would give us our own humility to, to learn and grace to see our own blind spots as we live before a God who has exalted the Messiah who is our King, who turns enemies into Ottomans. As this plan of salvation thunders forward to the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we stand in awe of a King who is reigning and a King who is coming back in the flesh. We praise you for the reality that though our bodies will see corruption, just like David's, that they will not ultimately be left to death in the grave because of the resurrection of Christ, the exaltation of Christ, the reign of Christ. Lord, I pray that this perspective and this power would permeate all of our thinking, would it that it would transform our desires, and that we would live as those who inhabit a kingdom that will never pass away. In the name of Jesus.